Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome everyone back to another episode of DC Power Hour. Joined again by the Battery Blarney Duo, and we've got a couple special guests with us today, which we're really excited to have on the program. I will pass it over to Alan, and, and he introduced them and get us going to be a, a very interesting conversation. So, Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Hi, everybody. A little bit ironic today. It's kind of a reunion of sorts. Our two guests are Al Warner and Dan Lambert, and of course, my Lonnie brother, George, and all of us at one time work for American Power Conversion in different roles and different aspects. But as I say, it's a little bit of a reunion, but I'm really excited to have uh, Dan and Al on the, on the podcast. They're very, very knowledgeable about but different battery chemistries. But let me start off by saying, full disclosure, I'm a leadhead, a little bit of nickel thrown in. I've been working with lead-acid batteries for the last 40-odd years. To my mind, they're still the most reliable battery out there. I've lived through the evolution of lithium chemistries, and I'm not a big lithium fan. Everybody knows that. I think they're dangerous. You know, there's so many different lithium chemistries, lithium ion phosphate and lithium nickel, manganese, cobalt, oxide, cobalt oxide, manganese oxide, nickel, cobalt, aluminum oxide, and it goes on and on and on. But they all have the same basic problem, and that's that they're subject to spontaneous disassembly, shall I call it. In other words, bad things happen. The industry's looking around for an alternative. And I'd like to start off, first of all, by talking to the three guys and seeing what their thoughts are. You know, are they leadheads, cautiously optimistic about lithium, or just where they're coming from? So I'll start with you, Al, if you don't mind. Well, you know, you know me, Alan. Uh, I'm an old leadhead. I started out with lead acid way back in my military career, you know, everything in the military is DC powered, all your communications equipment, because you have no AC power out on the battlefront. So I started out with batteries there and learned quite a bit uh, working in communications and stuff. And then into the UPS industry where back in 1983, you know, everything was lead acid. There was a few NICAD stuff, but NICAD was kind of a niche thing, evolution through Best Power and uh, APC and Schneider Electric. I got involved with lithium in about 2016, learned quite a bit about it, what to do and what not to do and how to do things right, which is unfortunate. You know, we've got new energy storage technologies that are being developed or are already here. Every technology has good and bad. That's the way I look at it. There, there are cons and pros to everything. And to find the right technology for the application is really the trick. 
your problem there is just like you said, you've got to prevent it from unexpected disassembly, primarily from fire. So if you allow a lithium battery to catch on fire, it will produce its own combustible components, oxygen and hydrocarbons. You can't put it out. You could cover it with water and it'll just keep burning. So that's the problem. That's the problem with the Tesla and everything else. When Once those lithium catch on fire, it's you, you've just got to let it burn. There's no fire retardant that will put out a lithium fire. We're talking about Tesla and everything else. Our focus is on batteries that are used, stationary batteries that are used primarily indoors or in outdoor yep. shelters. So, you know, that's a huge problem. We've all seen uh, things that have happened with energy storage, lithium batteries. And I'll bring George in because I think George has talked to some of his friends in, in Korea and they've given him an update on what's happening there. So, George, would you like to? Expand upon that. Yeah, I'll comment on that one. I was talking to an old colleague from my previous employer, and he was telling me that uh, SK, which is one of the largest communications companies, they also run data centers as well, that they are moving back to lead acid because they have had too many fires with lithium. He was telling me that simply because he was he'd got an order for a large number of battery monitoring systems, which of course was lead acid based. But then I read about three weeks later about a huge data center fire that belonged to SK and it had taken two of their most popular uh, social services down for something like two or three days. I can see why they were considering a change in battery technology at that point. I think we've got to accept though that there are going to be other batteries there are going to be batteries that may be better than lead acid at times, you know, and I realize that none of us on here are young. The concept of change is difficult. I think we have to accept it. It's going to be interesting to hear from uh, Dan and Al where they're coming from. I have a little interest in it because Dan co-opted me onto a uh, alternative technology committee at the IEEE. I'm still not quite sure what I'm there for, but... Um, other than probably to give them moral support. Thanks, George. You said that we're all slow to accept change. I can remember a BATCON back in the 90s when lithium was first coming out and every BATCON, people start asking, you know, where are we with lithium? And I said, oh, not going to happen in my lifetime. I just hope that doesn't come true. You know, with the wide, wide acceptance of lithium. Well, I bring Dan in because Dan, like the, like the rest of us, has started his battery experience primarily with lead acid batteries, and he worked for uh, one of the early innovators of battery monitoring. So, Dan, where are you coming from? I hate to admit it in, in public, but I'm an old leadhead too. I started out. As a field electrician, maintaining and installing, removing lead-acid battery strings in UPS systems. As you said, I, I went to work for one of the early battery monitoring slash management companies. Through that, came to work for APC, where I was 
pretty much a lead head all the way up until the time that I became a product manager for a very large UPS model. Schneider bought us and we created a basically a study group to explore the energy storage technologies that were available at that time. At that time, everything that was essentially commercially available from uh, lead acid, NICAD, the high temperature sodium batteries, flywheels, compressed air. I think probably the only thing we did not look at at that point in time was pumped hydro, which was kind of a different scale situation as well. We looked at flow batteries and super caps and got interested in some of the lithium batteries. In that point in time, I, I became fairly interested in lithium, necessarily a convert, but at the same point in time, I had, because of all of the other things that we were looking at and, and the scope of the project we were working in, it was a pretty, pretty much a requirement that you went at everything with an open mind. And early on, we looked at several of the, the lithium manufacturers at that time, and some of them were better than others. Performance of the batteries comparatively for high rate discharge and such as that recharge times were significantly better than lead. But we were very early in the life of the technology, and it was definitely not nearly as advanced as, as it is now. Having said that, Probably the last 10 years have shown me that if I've got to choose a battery type and I'm down to two, I'm going to buy a lead battery instead of a lithium one. And it's witnessed and, and Al sort of pointed at this and George, you did as well with your discussion about the data center fire in Korea. We've seen several major fires in stationary battery applications with lithium. Unfortunately, the one time that we've had the customer really say what happened, it was the Korean fire recently, and they directly blamed it on the lithium battery. Recent experience shows us that there are all sorts of problems with lithium. High humidity can cause arcing and, and internal shorting in the battery packed. You look at the fires in EVs of all types, that happened since Hurricane Ian. They, they get inundated with uh, salt water or even fresh water for that matter. The cars will just spontaneously burst into flame. Most recently, there was a couple driving down the Pennsylvania Turnpike in their Tesla, and the car just spontaneously caught fire that started smoking. They pulled over and got out of the car safely. And they called the fire department to come put it out, and we're with a typical vehicle fire, it takes usually less than 500 gallons of water to extinguish the fire. This Tesla fire took them over 12,000 gallons of water. And basically all they were doing was keeping it cool enough so that it didn't explode. It, it did burn itself out. It was a hulk by the end of the fire. Having started out as a lead head and been through looking at lithium and some of the experiences with lithium, I'm definitely a convert to, shall we say, other technologies. It kind of reminds me, introduction and evolution of valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, you know, which was customer-driven. They wanted something smaller, lighter, cheaper, more user-friendly. You know, that went through a lot of teething problems. Uh, thankfully, they've ironed out most of those problems now, but that reminds me of kind of lithium. It was kind of customer-driven, primarily by the automotive industries, 
And of course, all manufacturers look around and say, well, where else can we use this technology? They pinpoint it data centers primarily because I think they were smart enough to know that the utilities wouldn't accept it. Some of the problems uh, as well with telecommunications industry. You know, I can't see a lithium battery going into central office at the moment. So anyway, having said that, you know, we're look, looking at alternative technologies. Dan or Al, you and I had a conversation recently. Let's say a conversation, you know, emails back and forward. And we talked about a company called Ambry, uh, which is a liquid metal battery, if memory serves me right. You want to talk a little bit about that? You know, that's one, one technology that some people think is, is promising. You know, we'll talk about some other technologies. I think we're all in agreement that we need to find an alternative to lithium if we're going to have some of the newer chemistries acceptable for use in occupied spaces. What do you know about the AMBRI? Well, Alan, actually, I've been following AMBRI since MIT announced the invention of the liquid metal battery. Donald Sadaway, who's a chemistry professor at MIT, and one of his graduate students uh, patented that design of a liquid metal battery where all three elements are actually liquid metal. It's very similar to a flow battery, but all of the elements are liquid. And uh, this, this occurred in 2009. I immediately looked at it and I thought, wow, that is phenomenal. And the preliminary studies that they did at MIT said this battery would have huge storage capability. It's really, from what I know, I've been following it, you know, every development of it. And it's been finally, they have installed a system at Microsoft with Schneider Electric and Ambry, and it's fully commissioned and operational today. But this battery is not designed for your average data center or edge data center. It's a large storage system. It's immune to all these problems we have with uh, lithium ion. As far as grid energy storage, microgrid, or very big data centers, you see data centers today that are easily over 100 megawatts of power. Those applications and grid energy and microgrid, like large campuses, universities, uh, even small villages and cities, that storage system, it's designed for outside installation. It sounds very promising. I'm looking forward to seeing how it actually turns out because with every battery technology, there's a niche for what is the storage time? What is the rate of discharge? You know, high rate discharge, pure lead, you're looking at one to five minutes as being a really, really nice window for that technology. And then you look at lead acid or lead calcium, VRLAs, they fall into this a little longer storage time. You can't really discharge them. They're not designed, you, you don't design a one minute VRLA battery. It just won't work. 
then you look at the lithium. That battery, from my experience at Schneider and APC, is that battery is good for 10 minutes out to however long you want it, but you have to be very careful about your fire protection. It's not like a Tesla. The battery itself will not go into thermal runaway by itself. It has a very active, precisely controlled BMS system that will trip that system offline, remove all voltage and current external to it, and just shut it down. But if you allow it to catch on fire, if you don't put out the fire in the room, most of these lithium battery fires have occurred because people did not have good fire suppression to take care of the external flame source. UL9540A, the test for fire in lithium storage systems, they call it thermal runaway. But in reality, the standard, the battery is tested by using an external heat source, essentially an electronic, an electrical heat plate that's placed under the cells and allowed to heat the cells up to ignition without any external sources. They deliberately set the cell on fire and see how it propagates in the system. Some lithium manufacturers will say, okay, it's UL 95480A for the cell. They won't say it's UL 9540A compliant for the system. There's different levels within UL 9540A. Cell, module, system, and installation. If you can pass the system level without being required to go to the system level does not include fire suppression. Installation level includes fire suppression. Now there, there's one manufacturer out there that I know of, and I won't say the name, but that system was tested the UL 9540A, and you could put that system in a 20 by 20 plywood box, and the box would not catch on fire. But there are others that are just, I wouldn't even touch them. Particularly, you know, lithium pouch cells and things like that. There are too many variables. The pouch cells themselves I'm a firm believer that prismatic cells are the way to go if you're going to use lithium. And you have to be careful because there's so many manufacturers offshore. They're, they're, everybody wants a piece of the pie, and governments are throwing money away like it's monopoly money. But it's our tax dollars that they're throwing at these companies, and they gladly take it and run. If you're going to use lithium, you have to do it very intelligently. You have to make sure your fire suppression is top notch. I would not use anything other than uh, Novec 1230 as a fire suppression agent in a room that has lithium in it. So, well, so thanks, thanks, Al. You have a lot of insightful things there. Let me just swing back to the Ambry 
a liquid metal battery we talked about. What are the advantages of it with respect to, you know, obviously safety, you know, maintainability? Well, those are huge. The the battery components, I mean, the three the three liquid metals, the the bottom is antimony. The electrolyte is sodium. The top element is a calcium alloy. I believe they probably have another patent on the alloy. I think my first guess is they came out initially with this patent with antimony, molten salt, and manganese. But now they've changed to a calcium alloy. I believe it's an alloy with manganese, but I'm not certain. But those are the three elements of this battery, and it runs at five, uh, 700 degrees centigrade. It's like a molten salt battery. It's super, in a super insulated container, and it's been 13 years in development. Primary problems with the design of this battery is really the physical container, doing the seals, doing the a container itself and scaling it up to where it's a usable at very high energy densities and very reliable. And the fact that Microsoft, Schneider, and Ambry have partnered and they have installed an operating system at a Microsoft site means this technology is now ready for prime time. I know the guys Schneider very well, but so does Nan. They do a lot of due diligence before they ever approach a project. So from a grid energy storage, microgrid, and that level of storage energy, this technology looks like it's very viable and it's lithium won't be able to compete not in that market anymore, if this really goes. Yeah, what I was kind of driving at, Al, you know, using antimony, calcium, they're all relatively cheap, you know, elements, as opposed to the cobalt and lithium and everything else, using the manufactured lithium-ion batteries. I hope uh, George George and and Al, George and Dan don't seem neglected here. I'm going no, to get hey, to that. Just a quick comment. Your thing about antimony and calcium. That was one of Donald Sadaway's primary drivers in for his chemistry students was if we're going to make something, we've got to make it dirt cheap. And if we make it out of dirt, it's got to be cheap. So <laughs> all of these elements are available around the world. So you can build this battery anywhere. Okay. Uh, I'm going to bring Dan in in a minute, but. George, you had mentioned some of the stuff that was happening. First of all, I'd like to get your real take on lithium, but you'd mentioned some stuff that was happening at IEEE as well. Maybe that'd be a good intro to what Dan's going to talk about. So over to you, George. Yeah, it was it was actually the last back on that I got introduced to the concept of, well, I knew Dan was into nickel at the time, uh, nickel, the nickel zinc. And I was introduced to the concept of uh, zinc manganese, which is our old traditional primary battery, but now as a rechargeable. And it, it caught my attention. That was really the answer. And then, as I said, Dan co-opted me onto a committee within the Energy Storage and Stationary Battery Committee. And it's it's keeping my interest going in it. I think there are 
My only concern about the the liquid, the molten salt batteries is the heat involved. It's just, you know, actually, Al and I were actually on a a conference, a meeting last week with somebody. I won't go any further than that. One of the, the points I made during that meeting was that I think one of the biggest challenges we have in introducing the new technologies is that we lack good integration companies with lots of integration knowledge about how to integrate these new batteries. The companies that are making them, and I know that Dan's probably got some comments to make on this when when he talks about it, but it seems to me is that a lot of times these batteries are produced in a way that don't necessarily integrate very well into systems as we know them today. So you need you know, experienced integrators, people that understand every aspect of the system, the controller, the physical design, manufacturing techniques, all of that to put them together. And I think that's where a lot of our, our problems come. And I think that's where a lot of our problems have come with the lithium ones, because Al made the comment he wouldn't go with certain things. You know, the whole cost, the whole idea of lithium was get the cost down, get the cost down. Well, with Lithium as a material being dominated by a couple of providers, the only way you're going to get the cost down is either in the way you manufacture the cells or on the controllers, both of which can affect the reliability of the the end battery. Your thoughts on that one, Dan? Yeah, I agree with you. You basically have an issue here where you're trying to cheapen the battery, make it more affordable but you're also having to integrate a lot of basically very high-tech electronics into it to, to manage the battery. You're having to obtain the materials for the battery, which are not inexpensive to obtain to begin with. As you said, you have basically a couple of providers. There's a fine line there where you mentioned another thing there too, and that is, and I think Al, you talked about this, about the fact that the integrators, uh, the people who put the batteries in place and actually make them work they don't understand the batteries and it doesn't help when the manufacturer doesn't give you all the facts we had a situation in arizona where a battery manufacturer produced the batteries and sold them to an integrator and told the integrator the batteries wouldn't burn so the integrator installed enough fire suppression to control the electronics fires if there were one in the container but not enough fire suppression to be able to deal with any kind of a lithium fire. The batteries did catch fire. There were a couple of firefighters injured in it. They ended up having to let the container burn down because there was no adequate way to to be able to get into it and, and suppress the fire. I think a better solution is to build a battery that doesn't require as much management, quote unquote, and basically it won't burn. The one downside I see to all of the molten metal, molten salt batteries, rather than just the containment of the of the heat, is the fact that you have to maintain that. And that requires some electrical power. If you're ta- attaching to the grid in some manner, it's not nearly so big an issue. But if you're sitting in a data center or something like that, where economies of scale and efficiency of the data center are high priorities, you tend to get into a situation there where just maintaining the heat of the batteries can impact a lot of people use PUE or other other measures. But that inefficiency affects the overall efficiency of, of the data center. The other direction is to find something that won't burn. 
doesn't require the thermal management, doesn't require nearly so much system control. Realistically, it's something that can be manufactured out of readily available goods, as Al pointed to, something that you're not going to have to go to exotic places and mine in remote areas or something like that. So being able to obtain your materials virtually anywhere is is a huge piece of it. And if you have simple manufacturing technology, that helps things as well. You can build a remarkably good battery uh, with relatively simple manufacturing technologies locally available goods. And even if the materials that you're using are more expensive, you still come out with a more reasonably economical energy storage system. Thanks, Dan. When you guys were talking, I somebody mentioned about money that's being thrown at, at primarily lithium. If all this money wasn't thrown at it, lithium would probably be dead by now. And we might have found another technology. Anybody like to comment on that? Al, do you got a thought on that first? I'll defer to you. Yeah, well, Alan, the fundamental problem is technology development takes time. There are a lot of ideas, thousands of ideas out there from different engineering schools and energy storage. Energy storage is our future. That's absolutely true. There is nothing that's going to change that. It's finding the right energy storage for the right applications and using them intelligently. The heat from uh, an AMBRE battery, their fundamental design issues over the last 13 years is insulation systems, seals for the battery terminals, things like that. That battery starts out, it's all solid antimony, calcium, and once it's placed under charge, it starts to heat up and those components become metal. Once they are in a liquid metal state and fully charged, that battery is ready to discharge. And they readily recommend that this battery be fully discharged one to two times per day. That really fits into the grid energy storage. It's not something you do in a data center. And with respect to other technologies like the new nickel batteries we all know our friend dan has been involved in those have their applications too and they're viable technologies the problem we have with most people is they think lithium is a one-size-fits-all it's not it cannot fit all of the applications and certainly the ambry battery will not power your cell phone. It will not power a small data center. It will not power edge data centers. It will not do things that people think it should do because it's designed for scale. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. You hit on really the crux of the matter there, Al, and that is application. You're liquid metal battery, a number of others, particularly flooded lead acid. I'm thinking more along the thin plate type batteries here. They have great applications. You get into more energy, and I'll differentiate. Uh, Energy uh, type battery is something that's designed to produce power over a long period of time at a moderate discharge rate, and I use moderate relatively. And power batteries are sort of the other end of the scale, that is where they're designed to produce an awful lot of power 
very quickly, short duration run times. Uh, you can think of this basically as, uh, let's say, a 1 to 15 minute discharge rate would be a power type battery. Four, eight, 12, 24 hour discharges are going to be done with large flooded batteries. Typically, your lead acids or something like this, the sodium batteries or the and George mentioned it earlier, the zinc manganese dioxide uh, secondary battery. Those are the type of batteries that you would use in an energy application. Now, talking about the lithiums in this world, realistically, what we're talking about with most lithium technologies is they're using an energy battery and massively paralleling it in order to get enough power out of it to accomplish a quote-unquote power battery application. In the lithium world, there the last count, there were 26, 27, 28 different lithium technologies out there. The, the closer you get to a power lithium battery, the more volatile the chemistry becomes. Lithium is inherently an unstable chemistry, and as it ages, it gets proportionally more unstable. You get out into the power application, and with lithium batteries, you can have spontaneous fires regardless of management. So that's the reason those types of batteries are not typically applied in most of the applications we would see in the stationary world. It was alluded to earlier, I've been working in a technology that's actually, it's a quote-unquote new old technology. It's only been around since about uh, 1900. Thomas Edison had the first patents on nickel zinc, and he was so far ahead of the technological curve that he couldn't make the battery live very long. Considering the, the separator materials, the electrolytes that he had to work with, the base metals, the purity of the base metals that he was working with, he had issues with it. Through the years, there have literally been millions of dollars invested into the development of the nickel zinc technology. It's currently manufactured by a couple of different parties here in the United States. Now, we've been in production. Uh, I think we're probably the oldest continuous production company of the nickel zinc batteries. We've been building the batteries since 2010 or thereabouts. I uh, had it commercially available since about 2012. And we've basically, with almost 100 patents in the technology, we've basically cured the issues that Thomas Edison faced blow my own horn or anything like that. I want to tell you that there are other technologies out there that are based on metals that are, or materials, I should say, that are very, very common that work extremely well in other applications. Again, application being the key. The nickel zinc battery as we produce it is basically a very high power battery. It's capable of very high outputs for short durations. It's ideal for 15 minutes or less duration applications, high power type applications. It's not so good if you get an hour or longer. Again, full disclosure, this is basically a nickel cadmium battery. It's had the cadmium electrode removed and replaced with a metallic zinc electrode. And of course, some of the patents cover separator materials, electrolyte, the alloying of the electrodes themselves. Also, a lot of patents around the technology of manufacturing the batteries and how easily we can manufacture the battery. The other technology I was alluding to, the zinc manganese dioxide, is kind of the other end of the scale. It's a zinc battery, very similar to the zinc manganese primary cells that 
George was talking about earlier, but um, there's a company based out of New York that has created this battery. It's Urban Electric, and they have been able to take that primary technology and turn it into a rechargeable or secondary chemistry. And it is very, very good at energy type applications. And George, I'm glad I did drag you in. You've been been a good contributor to my to my committee. There are other technologies out there that uh, really are going to push the envelope. We are in the zinc world, particularly with the nickel zinc battery, in the de- development uh, curve of these things. Where were lithium batteries were 30 plus years ago? We've just scratched the surface of what this battery is capable of. Really interesting, Dan. And you mentioned something, you know, and I'll mention it. You know, no one size fits all unless it's a lead acid battery or a nickel cadmium battery. <laughs> you also mentioned uh, your new old batteries. A couple of things come to mind, and maybe you guys can comment on it. Back in the early days, when I say early days, 1900s, there was a an iron battery out, iron air. Of, they seem to last forever. Uh, there was also, an, I think, a nickel-iron air battery or something like that. But any comments on the reinventing the old technologies? Al had mentioned your know, plantae cells. Uh, plantae cells, great battery used primarily in Europe. We'll talk a little bit about, about the various lead-acid technologies in a minute. What, what about reinventing or coming out with new old battery technologies. Anybody like to comment on that? Well, I'll comment on it because that's <laughs> one of the things I've been looking at is the nickel iron battery, the one you're talking about, the one that um, originally patented by Tesla and Edison at the same time, but Edison took it and ran with it, and uh, Tesla focused on the actual nickel cadmium. The, the whole point about the nickel iron is it is, as you said, it's very, very reliable in the sense that it goes on for years and years. Uh, You can simply refresh it by washing it out and adding new electrolyte. Uh, One of our previous contributors uh, was talking about a battery that he he looked at that was had been in service, had been sitting locked away in a cabin up in the uh, Andirondacks for years and years. It had been originally in a backup for a hunter's cabin they just wanted rid of it. And he took it away, cleaned it all out, charged it up, and lo and behold, it was still sitting at about 90% capacity. It has low capacity for its volume, so it takes a lot of uh, space up, which doesn't make it, and it's not truly that efficient. But however, if I was to say to somebody that wanted to put solar on an outdoor cabinet in the middle of nowhere, you know, and wanted a battery that would survive under those conditions, they couldn't go far wrong with nickel iron. But is it ideal for the application? Uh, You've got to come back. It keeps going back to this whole concept of it. It's the application. Alan, you just commented on, well, you know, lead acid covers everything. Um, I've got news for you. Lead acid doesn't cover everything. We've got so many different versions of lead acid out there from different manufacturers that, no, You've got to choose the right one. It's a key element of it, you know, which is the right battery for the application. Sad to say, I have seen 20-year batteries that are intended for uh, 20 years' life and long discharge being used on UPS systems and people wondering why they don't work well. 
you know, because they picked the wrong one. I think the most interesting thing is that in a lot of the field applications I've been involved in with training is this whole thing about, you know, well, we're just replacing the battery we originally had, but it didn't work very well. Why don't we look at it and find out which battery would be better for you than the one you have? Because it was the wrong one to start with. You, you keep, we keep going back to it. I think we're just lacking a lot of knowledgeable experience out there in order to do this type of integration that people are looking for. A lot of this doesn't, the knowledge to do it doesn't come from a book or a college course. It comes from practical experience of what worked and what didn't work when you were out there. I'll stick with that. So I often say to people, uh, my old boss, the, the late Paul Barlock, his favorite saying to me was, if he was sending me out to do something, was just go and do it. It's, it's nothing you haven't seen before. It's just got a different coat on it. And you know something? There's a hell of a lot of truth to that. I know you like to disagree with me, George, but I think you picked up it the wrong way when I said, you know, lead-acid batteries, long duration, short duration, antimony, selenium, tin, you name it. But they're still all lead-acid-based technologies. So anyway, Dan, I forget where we were, but I think about we talked about reinventing old technologies. Either Al, would you like to comment on that? It's probably your turn. Well, yeah. I'm the fact is would be considered old technologies are being re-examined today. Take the iron air battery from the 1900s. I mean, Ford used them in their first electric vehicles. The iron air battery, MIT just announced they were doing research. 2021 on Iron Air. If you do a, a search on online, you'll find all kinds of information on how different universities and scientists are looking at these old technologies and figuring out, well, hey, they worked, but how can we make them work better? And I think that's what's happened with nickel zinc and lead acid and lithium. I mean, lithium is like how many lithiums are out there? The supply of lithium, the supply of cobalt, all those elements are not local. And if you can't build it dirt cheap, you're not building it out of local dirt. So being able to use nickel and zinc and uh, like the Ambry battery, those can be built in any country in the world virtually because of the chemistries that are involved. So I think that's an advantage that people really have to consider that these other technologies that rely on these rare earth metals, those are slowly going away because we don't have enough of those rare earth metals to satisfy the need of the applications. EVs are one of the, the EV market, they have targeted the lithium battery for that application, which is, you know, uh, 300 miles, six hour discharge, recharge overnight, do another one. But who's going to wait for overnight charging? You go to the gas station and fill up your car. Takes you five minutes and you're done and you drive away with your ICE engine. 
and you can go to the next gas station. And people think these EVs are going to be like that. No, it, all of this stuff is being driven by taxpayer dollars and governments throwing huge amounts of money at them rather than looking at what's the pl- practical application of these systems and how do we solve our transportation problems? How do we solve the energy storage problems? It's only through hard work by companies that do the research that we're going to get these answers. And Zinc 5 is one of them. Eagle Eye being able to point out that these discussions about reality, this is the reality of what we see uh, sold silver foxes that have been around a long time. And we look at things and we analyze it very differently than these youngsters do. It is what it is. We've got to find the right tools to satisfy the application. And doing it intelligently is a tough job. Al, you mentioned uh, reality, which made me uh, made me smirk a little bit. I had a I have a son that went to University of Colorado at Boulder, and they used to describe Boulder as 58 square miles surrounded by reality. As I mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of money being thrown at it, a lot of our money. It's almost as if money's been thrown at lithium just to, to prop it up with not much money going towards these other technologies. Let's briefly look at some other storage technologies. I'm thinking of uh, pumped hydro. I'm thinking of, uh, oh, a name escapes me, but oh, tidal uh, storage, things like that. So, uh, anybody like Dan, do you want to comment on something like that? But before we jump to that, let me go back one thing that Al said that really it, it's kind of the crux of the matter. We're talking about batteries using rare earth metals. There's a reason they're called rare. There, there's not a whole lot of them, and, and the prices go up exponentially as you use them up. The real key here to energy storage as we move forward is going to be and is, is rapidly becoming kind of a focal point for everybody is the sustainability of the technology. And some of these old technologies, uh, yeah, they're old. They weren't really, shall we say, manipulated or uh, commercialized basically because the technology at the time of the invention was to our way of looking at it, very rudimentary. We have much better technology now. And as modern science looks at these things, they can see massive improvements that can be made. And that's basically what's happened with the zinc manganese. It's a completely new look at the old zinc manganese battery, the nickel zinc battery, completely new look at the way nickel zinc was put together. And the technologies that we've developed in the last hundred plus years have advanced to a point now where some of these so we call them outlier technologies, have rapidly become a very, very sustainable and uh, viable solution. Most of these technologies, and I'll even, for us old lead heads, I'll even add lead into the mix. You look at these technologies, and when you can recycle 90 plus percent of a battery and reuse it in a fresh battery, that's a pretty darn good sustainability story. And the the lithium technologies, we are just now coming to a point where there are a couple of viable potential solutions. There are not any of them in mass use right now. They're every one of them in a developmental stage. 
And it's probably going to be a while before they can do anything meaningful as far as being able to recycle the lithium batteries successfully in mass. Some of these technologies, pumped hydro has been around for a long, long time, and it's a very viable method of mass energy storage, being able to, to use it for grid stabilization, injections of massive power needs whenever you have basically high demand cycles and such as that. That's a great use. The title generation, excuse me, wind power, solar, all of these technologies that are out there now that are being used as quote unquote sustainable technologies, they all have a pretty high infrastructure cost up. So it's going to take a while for them to be able to give us a reasonable payback. But at the same point in time, virtually every one of these is going to require some kind of an energy storage, which us old guys, that's a bunch of batteries sitting somewhere storing all that energy that they're creating so it can be re-injected into the grid. The thing I liked about Tidal, I know it's very hard to implement, but with wind, the wind doesn't always blow. All right. Solar, the sun doesn't always shine. As long as we have a moon up there, high tides and low tides, why not make use of it? Other interesting thing I read about, oh, some time ago was they were building a data center somewhere. Maybe Al, you might know, next to a, I believe it was a harbor somewhere. And they were using uh, some of the energy they could get from the seawater to run batteries for uh, data centers. Do you know anything about that, Al? Uh, There's been several projects that involve tidal energy. But the problem I see with tidal energy is you've got to be where that you have tides that allow you to use that power, you know, up there in the Northeast where they have very high tide levels between, you know, high tide and low tide. That's where you get a lot of energy. So alleviating energy shortages in those areas using tidal makes sense. But if you're somewhere where you don't have these very high tides, yeah, it's probably possible to generate energy, but it's not happening in Wisconsin. The same thing with pumped hydro. That requires some significant elevations and a landmass that allows you to pump that water up there. That's not happening in Kansas. Where do we get our energy from? We all know solar and wind are intermittent available resources. Intermittent because it doesn't blow all the time. Sun doesn't shine all the time. And if you were in Wisconsin in uh, the winter with uh, snowstorms occurring for a week, you're not getting any solar energy. You'll get some wind, but no solar. And your solar panels are going to be buried. Well, the guys out in Buffalo, New York, their solar panels, they're going to be digging those out for a few weeks, probably. Storing the energy is really the key. There, there's lots of places we get energy. We have excess energy in some locations where we can store it and feed it back into the grid using the right technologies. And there's a lot of companies that make grid interactive inverters and stuff like that that take this dc power and put it back into the grid 
the real key is going to be where we get away from these rare earth metal storage devices. If we keep going after lithium, it's going to be a disaster because it, it won't work. It, there's not enough cobalt and the other elements because some of those elements that are in lithium batteries, they're in your catalytic converter too. And people are stealing catalytic converters to sell them because it's big bucks. Look up the prices for cobalt per ounce. You will be astounded how expensive that material is. And the same thing as the other components in a lithium battery that are rare earth. Manganese, not the manganese, I'm trying to think of it. You actually go online, look, take the chemical breakdown of the battery and look up the global price for that element or that metal. And you'll be astounded how expensive these things are. And they're only produced in a few countries and not in the United States. That's for sure. So we have to move away from the, this type of brainstorming or brainwashing that lithium is the answer to all our problems. It's not. I like lithium. I like it for certain applications, and it works great, but it's not going to be the answer for the our future. I feel sorry for our children's children if we bet everything on lithium. We have to bet on research and science and follow the science and not the politicians. The people who understand chemistry, packaging, and all of these other things that go into energy storage. Lead acid will always work for storage. You need some DC power. Yep, it's reliable. It's been around a heck of a long time. It's been through how many developments, how many patents are on lead acid batteries? We see the same thing happening with all of the other energy storage systems. People are continually looking at them, figuring out how to make them better. Like Dan said, back in the day, the, the science was very rudimentary and they moved on iron air batteries to lead acid and lead became the popular choice, rightly so. Readily, easily buildable. Look at how many lead acid manufacturers are around the world. And the same thing is proving true of lithium. There's so many offshore lithium manufacturers that you have to be very careful when you choose your cells and how you package them and how you protect them. Heat issue with the Ambry battery is a non-issue because that battery is super insulated and it's designed to discharge and recharge every day. That means it's not giving off heat. It's not energy inefficient in that application, grid applications. If I put it in a data center where it just sits there and have to keep it molten without discharging until the power fails, it's not a good application. One point that I've got here. Can you imagine having to carry your cell phone around if you had to have a lead acid battery that give you, say, 16, 18, 24 hours of actual use time? It would not be a pleasant experience. 
lithium does have its place, but again, it's application specific. Okay, let me throw this out as well. Okay, I, I'm a utility company, and I've put a battery in a substation and our switching yard. What would be my choice at the moment, or what would you recommend? And I'll, I'll go around uh, all three of you. George, what would you recommend? Well, we're, we're still going to stick with lead acid, to be honest, and ventilated acid, preferably. Um, there will be, however, pressure on uh, you know, to use lithium, simply because one of the latest standards, TPL001-5, introduced the concept that they wanted the batteries and charger systems within the substations to be redundant. Unless we are going to rebuild every substation there is out there, guess what? There is not enough space in most of them to put redundant batteries in unless we become a little innovative in the way we rack and stack them. Lithium becomes in. We have a, a colleague within uh, Batcon and IEEE who has put lithium into substations, has his own viewpoints on it, primarily uh, to do with the, uh, the management of them, not the safety management the management of them as a resource of power and understanding what's available and uh, what failure beckons are, what, what potential problems there could be with these systems. Because there's a distinct lack of information provided from the management system to the operator, other than, oh, by the way, I've taken this string off because it has a problem. Operations people don't like that type of instruction. But the one thing, Alan, that we haven't talked about is flow batteries. Now, it's not a subject I'm versed in at all, and I'd be interested to hear from Dan and Al about them. But flow batteries appear, and they're one of those items that have been around for a long time, theoretically should be ideal for still energy storage for the utilities. But we're just not seeing them. We're seeing lots of trials they're never going into full production or never appear to be in any real volume. Okay, well, that will do it for part one of our episode on battery chemistries. Please tune in in a couple of weeks for part two, and we'll pick up the discussion where we left off. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.